Hey, I Made It in San Diego listeners. Kinsey Moreland here to tell you about some changes we're trying out. We are going to be dropping most of the podcasts we produce here at Voice of San Diego into the main Voice of San Diego podcast feed. We'll be treating that feed the same way we do our website, producing a variety of stories and shows we think Voice of San Diego listeners should hear. We've got podcasts covering local news and politics, cannabis, arts, and more. And now you'll be able to listen to all of them by subscribing to just the one Voice of San Diego podcast feed. For now, I'll keep updating the I Made It in San Diego feed with the podcasts we do about local businesses and the people behind them. But I really want to encourage you to head over right now to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the Voice of San Diego podcast. Just search Voice of San Diego podcast. It'll pop right up. You'll see it. The only show we're keeping separate for now is Good Schools for All. So if you're at all interested in stories about education, make sure you also subscribe to Voices San Diego's Good Schools for All podcast. Email us at podcasts at voicesandiego.org if you've got feedback. Thanks for listening. Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored in part by a proud supporter of Make-A-Wish. As a nonprofit news organization, Voice of San Diego depends on our members, foundations, and sponsors like Make-A-Wish. We are very grateful for all of our supporters, and we recognize their support in our shows. If you crave adventure, love the outdoors, and welcome a challenge, then the Make-A-Wish Trailblaze Challenge is for you. The Trailblaze Challenge is a one-day, 28-mile endurance event along the Pacific Crest Trail. It's open to all levels from novice to advanced outdoor enthusiasts. Visit www.trailblazechallengesd.org to learn more. Proceeds benefit Make-A-Wish. Challenge yourself in 2018, meet new people, and make a difference for children with critical illnesses. Voice of San Diego podcasts are also sponsored in part by a proud supporter of Monarch School. Monarch School educates students impacted by homelessness, helping them develop hope for a future with the necessary skills and experience for personal success. Monarch is holding its annual fundraiser, Building Bright Futures, on April 26th. Join event chairs Tracy Hoffman and recent Hall of Fame inductee Trevor Hoffman at this event. Find out more at monarchschools.org backslash events. And if you like Voice of San Diego's work and want to become a sponsor too, contact development at voiceofsandiego.org. Welcome to I Made It in San Diego, Voice of San Diego's podcast about the region's businesses and the people who built them. I'm Dallas McLaughlin, and in this week's show, I sat down with San Diego music legend Tim Mays. Chances are, if you've ever played in a band in San Diego, then you know who Tim is. The co-founder of numerous bars and clubs, including the Casbah, Starlight, and Turf Club, Tim has made a lasting imprint not only on San Diego culture, but underground and indie music across the country. The mythical, the legend, Tim Mays. <laughs> you stick around long enough, you can become legend. You know? <laughs> Anybody can do that. <laughs> I remember when I was uh, in my when I turned twenty one, I was finally able to go to the Casbah. I came in for a show. I cannot, for the life of me, remember what show. I want to guess it was like Unsteady or something. And uh, I walk in, and 
And some my friend was with me, Nick. He was like, "Dude, that's Tim Mays," and like we pointed at the bar, and I couldn't even tell you if it was you or not. It could have been somebody else. It could have been Tim Piles. It could have been Piles. It could have been Willie. For God's sake, yeah. I don't know who it was. But somebody's like, "That's Tim Mays," and we were like, "Oh no, we got to be quiet for some reason." You know, uh, the the beauty of the the whole club thing, especially if you got an over twenty one club, is that somebody always turns twenty one every day. Yeah, you know, so there's a never ending stream of new people who've you know been unable to get in or maybe have snuck in here and there but then they turn 21 and they're able to finally okay we can go and that's that's sustained us for so many years <laughs> and probably still does still every every day <laughs> tim is a native southern californian but what ended up bringing him to san diego was not what most people who've been to the casbah might have imagined i was born in los angeles i lived there until my parents got divorced in about uh, the age of nine. My sisters and I have two sisters. We moved with my mom to Barstow. Barstow, yes. city of dreams. Yes, this is the early 60s. Um, <laughs> my mom's parents lived there. And my mom's, grand, my mom's father, stepfather actually was a uh, contractor who built houses. So they gave my mom a house. Nice. And that's why we moved up there. And I went to school there and, and one year of uh, community college. Then I transferred down here to go to San Diego State in 73. And what was the reasoning for coming down here? Um, oddly enough, looking back, it was because I liked the San Diego State football team back then in the, wow. in the 60s and early 70s, uh, Don Coriel years. Yeah. Um, to this, this day, I'm not a big football fan now, but back then that was something that put the city on my radar. Tim started as an accounting major, but quickly realized he had a much more creative side and ended up getting a degree in telecom and film instead. There was only one problem with that. There was no industry in San Diego for that, so you had to move to L.A. Mm-hmm. And I, wasn't, I didn't want to move to L.A. And uh, during my last year in college, I kind of started getting into punk rock. couple people in the film department who were you know into punk rock and one of them one of them was in a local band called the scoings who were very early like 77 78 punk rock band in san diego and so i became interested in music and uh after i graduated i had a job working for an artist in coronado who's a friend just working in his studio and i kind of started i had a friend in orange county who i'd grown up with in barstow and we got the idea to put on a couple concerts in Barstow. Wow. Because so, we, you know, it was our hometown. We knew a lot of people. So we booked yeah. a couple bands from Orange County to go up there and play a couple different shows in like a USO hall. And Do you remember were, the bands at all? Um, there was a band called Earthquake, uh-huh. uh, California Rainbow. I still have the flyers for these these shows. Really? Um, and we, this was, so this was like 1979 probably. And we put on these shows, and they both did really well. And then we decided we start. Me and my friend started going to L.A. to see see bands like at uh, Hong Kong Cafe and the Whiskey and Madame Wong's and places like that. And so we decided to put on a show in L.A. And we rented a hall called Bases Hall in East East L.A. or East East Hollywood actually, and uh, put on a show with the Weirdos, the Plugs, 
uh, Suburban Lawns and the Penetrators, who are from San Diego. Yeah, I love the Penetrators. And we did that, and that was a huge success. <laughs> we turned turned away people at the door. We were just like, wow, this is amazing. And right at that time, there's a thing in San Diego called the Skeleton Club. And a girl named Laura Fraser ran that, and she somehow heard about my show in L.A. and somehow got a hold of me and asked me if I wanted to be her partner. So I gave her $1,000 and became her partner in the Skeleton Club. This was in like February of 1980. And that was down here in San Diego? That was on the corner of 2nd and Market. Oh, wow. Downtown. At, at the time, the police department was two blocks away. Uh-huh. And back then, punk rockers were not looked upon with very much... Uh, Good, good will or anything, especially by the police, because you know they would see us coming in and going out every every time they went out on their patrols. So we got a lot of uh, harassment from the police department then. We lasted about, uh, I think we closed in May, so it was only about four months because of uh, a, a police licensing issue that. Back then, you could either have a concert license, which allowed you to have all ages, but no dancing, or you could have a dance permit, which would only allow you to have people 17 years and older, and they could dance. Uh, Sounds like Footloose or something. Yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy. And so, you know, obviously we wanted all ages, and the question came down to what constitutes dancing. And, you know, back then it was all pogoing and jumping around, and... The police department construed that as dancing, so they cited us a couple times, and we just decided we couldn't 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 deal with that and closed. And from then on, I, I started managing a band and started putting shows on at the Spirit Club. Oh wow! Which was pre Brick by Brick days when Jerry Herrera ran it, and then uh, became involved with a group called Dead or Alive, who were putting on punk rock concerts at places like the North Park Lions Club and Fairmont Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, kind of started there. Tim started working with a booking group called Dead or Alive, but soon after, the group disbanded. In 1982, Tim started his own company called Tim Mays Presents. He still had random day jobs, but nothing that stuck. Tim just liked going to shows, and his side booking gig wasn't really about making money. It was about making sure the bands he liked came to San Diego. You know, sometimes you'd make money, sometimes you'd lose money. I didn't know anything about how to run a show at all when I first started doing my own, my own company. So I, I, you know, you learn pretty quickly when you, the mistakes you make cause you to lose money. Yeah. You know? Um, so then I started doing shows of my own at the North park lions club at the Adams Avenue theater, uh, Carpenter's hall and golden Hill, uh, spirit, I'm still doing stuff at spirit club and probably, I, I think I, uh, Started, well, we opened our first bar from, so this went up through about 86. Mm-hmm. And and for a while that I was unemployed and just trying to live off whatever I had coming in from concerts, which wasn't a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Rent was cheap back then. You had three or four roommates. Uh, 86, two friends and I, uh, Pete English and Bob Bennett, opened the Pink Panther. So what? At this point, you're unemployed. You're not making a ton of money. So what <laughs> encouraged you to say, hey, I know what I should do? <laughs> well, I mean, we, we, all three of us, my two other partners and I, we were all, all involved in music and culture. Uh-huh. And my partner, Bob, was 
had a, a vintage clothing store for years. Peter had a place called King's Road Cafe in uh, on 30th, which is near where Tornado is now. Uh, so we we all had a big we had a big social network. This was before social network was a thing. You had a real social. We had network. a lot of friends. Yeah. <laughs> so we figured that we could open a bar where our, our friends would come to. Uh-huh. And uh, we'd we'd always wanted to open a bar. We 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 between the three of us, we always put on parties and liked doing things like that. So um, we decided, you know, let's let's open a bar. <laughs> and uh, we we approached the first bar we approached, the Pink Panther on Marina Boulevard, where the near where the high dive is now. Uh, the guy wanted to sell it. We sent in a, a kind of a a friend of ours posing as a broker. Because <laughs> we had no idea how to approach the guy, so we sent in this this girl we knew, and she went in posing as a broker and said she had some clients interested in buying this bar. And the guy, so happened, he wanted to sell the bar because his wife had just run off with one of his best customers. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, bad, he bad wanted memories in that. Yeah, bar. right. He yeah. wanted to get out of there, so it was it was thirty thousand uh, dollars. We scraped together and three thousand dollar down payment. He, he gave a. Uh, he uh, gave us a note for the balance payable over like three years, I think it was, and we had ourselves a, a, a bar. It was a beer and wine bar. That's a, I mean, thirty thousand dollars yeah, for it was a bar. That just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is nineteen eighty six. Oh so. yeah, I mean those numbers, sure, but to yeah, people listening. But yeah, yeah. Nowadays, I mean, you're talking, you know, three fifty, four hundred with for a similar type. It was it was pretty run down, divey place. It was a, the clientele was a bunch of old timers. Uh, we went in and didn't really do much other than change the staff and add a nice jukebox with really good music. And within, uh, you know, four or five months, the place was packed five, six nights a week. Now, were you presenting shows as well? or was I was this- still doing shows. Uh, I quit. I, I kept doing shows through that time. I finally stopped probably in about 1987. I think one of the last shows I did was a show with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the Dickies at the North Park Theater, mm-hmm. which was, I forget what it was called back then. It might have been North Park Theater stuff. But this place got trashed. Oh. People ripped, it had seats back then, and people ripped out a bunch of seats, and, you know, it was like I lost a bunch of money on it. And by that time, the Pink Panther was starting to ramp up and do pretty well. So um, I, I kind of just stopped doing shows. There was also a lot of... Uh, a lot of violence at the shows in San Diego back then. Skinhead problems, yeah. and bands getting beaten up, and just you know, I, I got sick of the whole thing. Um, Were you doing concerts at Pink Panther? Or no, was no, it, it was strictly... a tiny place. There was uh-huh. no, there, there was no room to have a band there. And what do you think led to the success of Pink Panther? I mean, it went just from... because the fact that we, well, it was the first bar in San Diego owned by young people for young people. Oh. Back in that those years, all the bars in town were owned by you know o- older generation, and you you'd still go to them. But I can remember going to the Ken Club or the Alibi back then, and you know it was a bunch of it was an old person's bar. Mm-hmm. Most of the clientele was older. Uh, the the ownership was definitely older. The jukeboxes were playing older music, and the Pink Panther was like, okay, we were young, we were all involved in punk rock and stuff at the time, and uh, we had DJs who came in and spun new music and and it just became a, a a great place to go and have fun for young people at the time tim took a backup job at broadway clothing store just in case things fell through but the pink panther was packed nightly and in 1987 tim walked away from his day job 
and has never gone back. In 89, we got the option, uh, so a broker, call, a real broker, a real broker time, yeah, called a us <laughs> and said if, asked if we were interested in playing, buying this place on Kettner Boulevard called the Harp and Shamrock. And we went over and looked at it. And it's like, at that time, we were like, oh, we should open a place where we can do live music. And we looked at it. It was a, it was a struggling Irish bar. Um, Seems like they all are. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was weird. And we went in and looked at it. And it was only, this was only $35,000. And we bought it and turned it into the Casbah. And we opened there in 89. Now, did you buy and open the Casbah with the intent of making it a concert venue or was it just another bar? No, it was, we, we wanted to do live music. We put a s- tiny stage in there. Um, it wasn't, we didn't plan to do music to the extent we, we do now. Yeah. It was more, we were going to do some kind of some R and B stuff, some singer songwriter. We actually had an espresso machine when we first opened, <laughs> it was going to be a kind of more, more kind of casual, lighter musical thing than mm-hmm. it turned out to be. Um, but at the time, so we opened in 89, one of the partners was uh, Harlan Schiffman, who had a company called Fine Line Entertainment, who he, when I quit doing shows in 87, he kind of took up the slack and all the stuff that I did. So he was doing shows at uh, Spirit Club, Rio's, which was over in Point Loma. Uh, he did a bunch of the shows at Iguana's when that opened. Oh, Iguanas. He did a lot of the bigger shows there. And he became a partner in the new venture we were doing, Casbah. Mm-hmm. To clarify, the original Casbah, the one that Tim is talking about here, was actually about two blocks north of where the Casbah sits now. It was about half the size and only fit 75 people. But because of Harlan and Tim's friendship, every big underground and indie band played the Casbah. In 1990, two huge things happened. Nirvana played the Casbah. And underground music everywhere became huge, even right here in San Diego. I want to take a second here because we're getting into territory that as a, as a old San Diego musician and as a DJ here for years on 94.9, like, I mean, the Casbah is just a legendary place for most people. So in those early days when you were, when it was small and you had bands like Nirvana coming in, I mean, Nirvana, if we're talking 1990, that was right around when they started to get more and more popular. They hadn't broken huge yet, right? Um, just before the just before the record came out, just before the record. Yep. So what? I mean, what was that like to see a band like Nirvana come in, and then I don't know because I, I don't know what it's like, but and then to just see them break huge. What, did you know? Did you think as a person who books bands a lot, this this band's going to be huge? Or no, what? it was really hard. I mean, I actually missed the Nirvana show. Oh yeah, I was out of town that weekend. <laughs> on a pre-planned trip um but shortly thereafter the smashing pumpkins came through uh-huh. and just before they broke huge as well and so you could seeing that show you're like okay yeah these guys are going to be huge and but in the confines of a 75 capacity club with maybe 125 people stuffed in there i mean right then and there it's great but yeah there's no it's all hit and miss as far as somebody becoming big there's so many circumstances beyond just that that happening right then and there. Mm-hmm. So it was always hard to say, you know, but what we had going for us was that Harlan had been doing all these types of shows for a couple of years leading up to the Casbah opening. And I started getting calls from people I had dealt with back before I quit. So we had the in on all these emerging artists because of the booking agents that we had cultivated relationships with. 
And that's kind of what got us off the ground. Now, at the time the Casbah was going strong in those early years, uh, the only other place that was doing shows was, well, Brick by Brick was still, had just become Brick by Brick around that same time. But the ownership they had back then was really just not up to the task. So they kind of, they kind of ran the place into the ground. There was a uh, Bodie's downtown mm-hmm. owned by Brett Bodie from the Ken club. And he was doing shows at the same time we were, but being downtown and the whole thing, it just didn't take off there like it did at the Casbah. So we just kept plugging away, you know, and it got to the point where after a couple of years there, we started looking for ways to expand. The real broker they worked with found them another spot just down the road on the corner of Kettner and Laurel. At the time, it was a bar called Bulk, and Tim had never been inside. So he arranged for us to come and do a walkthrough, and we went in, and uh, right out of the gate, they had full liquor license, which Casbah was only beer and wine, so mm-hmm. we were just like, oh, that's great. Um, we walked in. They had a nice the patio and the little back room, and... Uh, three times the capacity of what we were looking at in the original location. But the thing that sealed the deal was we, they had a little office mm. with a private bathroom <laughs> because of the old Casbah, there was no private bathroom. And so employees, owners, staff, we'd have to get in line to go to the bathroom just like anybody else. So we walked in and saw the bathroom. We're like, we'll take it, you yeah. know, <laughs> and believe it or not, we paid 35,000 for that place. Really? Yes. This is in 1993. So at this time in 1993, did you still have ownership of the Pink Panther as well? No. Okay. Pink Panther had closed in 1990. Okay. We lost our lease there. Somebody bought the property and didn't want a, a bar there. So we lost the lease. Gotcha. So it was like from 90 through eight through 93, it was strictly the Casbah. Um, we took ownership. We, we bought this place, the new, the current place in late 93, uh, got our license approved in early 94 and moved, opened in 94 there. I have to ask two questions about the Casbah that I've probably always wanted to ask you that I'm sure you've gotten 5,000 times, so I apologize. One, why the Casbah? Where did the name come from? My partner Bob came up with that name somehow, and I I can't remember how. It was definitely not based on the Clash song. Mm -hmm. It was something I think, he grew up in Pittsburgh, and I think uh, when he was living there back in the probably the early 70s, there might have been, must have been a place called the Casbah that he was fond of or frequented. But, you know, uh, we're not sure. But it sounds cool. Yeah, it's so good, great. And it, so many people think it's oh, Rock the Casbah. Is that song written about the Casbah? I'm yeah. like, no, no, that was about seven or eight years prior to that. What's so. funny is growing up, I, I always heard that the, the Clash had written it about the Casbah. Right. And you should go with that one. Well, we would, <laughs> but the song came out about eight years before we opened. Yeah, nobody knows dates anymore. Yeah, that's true. Matter, yeah. That's true. <laughs> And my other question is, there's apartments above yes, the Casbah. Yes, that's always asked. Yeah, so were there's, you there first or were they there first? No, we've, they, they've been there all along. Um, there's been apartments up there ever since. That, that building is, the whole building is, ground floor is a club, upstairs is apartments. It's been that way from you know, probably when the building was built. Uh-huh. Back in the 50s, the Casbah was a bar um, and there was an apartment out back. The, the patio area was a driveway. Oh wow! And if you go back straight back, there was a garage. The the there's you can kind of tell there's two separate water water heaters in the building, and there's a patios and there's windows in interior spots where 
there's no reason for a window. So it was definitely two separate buildings back then. Um, so it was a bar in the 50s. It was a gay bar for many, many years uh, during the 60s and 70s and 80s probably, uh, mostly gay, sometimes lesbian. So it's got a long history. The, the landlord owns our building, and they've got all the little houses up behind it mm-hmm. in the back too. They own that whole corner. And uh, the rest of there's four four units above the Casbah. Some of the people have lived there a long time. Some people have raised kids there. Uh, we've only had one instance where somebody actually complained about noise. Wow. Years and years ago where uh, somebody, a new tenant moved in. And, you know, when they move in, they're, they're pretty much aware that there's a nightclub downstairs and there's jets landing above. Yeah. And uh, one day we're out on the patio and this lady leans out from her second, from the window above and, hey, can you guys uh, maybe turn the music down tonight? <laughs> and we just, I look at my, my friend who was standing there with me and I'm like, uh, probably not. I don't think that's going to happen. And she called the police on us a couple times a week or two later. One wow. Night and they came and we're just like, you know, hey, what we've been here for five years. What's, what's this? Well, we got to respond to a complaint, you know, uh-huh. so do what you can to keep the noise down. And I called my landlord the next day and said, Hey, this woman upstairs called in the police to complain on us. And she's like, okay, well I'm going to have to get her to move. So she gave her an eviction notice. And oh, wow. We've never had complaints other than that. that. It's incredible to me. You had one complaint about that. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, but good for you. I'm yeah. Sure. I mean, well, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's a given and pay attention to where, I mean, if you're not aware of what you're getting into, <laughs> sure. then, you know, that's on you. Uh, the Casbah layout to a lot of people, uh, to me personally, is is pretty legendary in itself. Uh, only because it feels to me like you're at a punk rock club. Like growing up in the, you know, I was coming of age in the early '90s, listening to all that early punk music, going to Iguanas, uh, you know, going to the old shows at Golden Hall that they used to hold, you know, getting kicked in the shins, yeah. all that fun stuff. Um, and I, I, what I love about the Casbah is when you walk in you feel like you're somewhere where you're going to hear something cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas it's not some clean, nice. Yeah. And it's venue. like, you know, it's, it's gritty. Yeah. And we haven't really changed anything. And was that kind of your intention that you just wanted to make it a, no, I mean, it, I think more in the beginning, it was just, you know, we didn't have any money. <laughs> so we just, you know, everything looks better with some paint and at night with some lights. Sure. And so you paint it and you, you string some Christmas lights here and there and, <laughs> You know, people who come in during the day, even now, like, wow, I've never been here in the daytime before. This place, it looks a little different. I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, well, you know, we don't open the daytime, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) But yeah, and you know, right now we're actually doing some, for the first time in all these years, we're doing some work in the back room to make it a little more comfortable and and some more seating. We're putting in a couple booths and doing some new lighting in the back room. Um, But other than that, you know, there's, there's not been really any reason to change anything. The Casbah's success continued to trend upward. With Harlan now as an official partner in the club, they had incredible access to some of the best bands of the 90s and early 2000s, including The Breeders, Cat Power, Liz Fair, White Stripes, Bright Eyes, Death Cab for Cutie, and many more. They established great relationships early on with several booking agencies, and as the legend of the Casbah grew, so did bands' desire to play there. It became the spot for bands on the brink or punk rock headliners to play. When we come back from the break, we'll hear how Tim Mays expanded the Casbah's impact without leaving the venue, and how his entrepreneurial mindset didn't stop at music. Oh, so long. 
This Voice of San Diego podcast is sponsored in part by the Downtown San Diego Partnership. As a nonprofit news organization, Voice of San Diego depends on our members, foundations, and sponsors like the Downtown Partnership. We are very grateful for all of our donors, and we will recognize their support during the show. Join the Downtown San Diego Partnership on Saturday, April 21st for East Village Sessions popular free workout event held on the streets of downtown San Diego. This one-day fitness event offers various workouts that will start your weekend off right. Join the downtown partnership at 8th Avenue and J Street for one class or stay for all five. Visit downtownsandiego.org for details and to register today. And if you like Voice of San Diego's work and want to become a sponsor, contact us at development at voiceofsandiego.org. Hey, welcome back to I Made It in San Diego. I'm Dallas McLaughlin. Tim Mays may have started as a small-time promoter for punk shows in the early 1980s, but by 1995, he had built the Casbah. Considered to be the music venue in San Diego by bands looking to make a name for themselves or those underground artists looking to break big. By the late 1990s, Tim and his club partner, Harlan Schiffman, had been booking and promoting some of the biggest names in rock music. But what about the bands that were too big to play the Casbah? Well, they had a plan. Here's Tim. Those bands are all, you know, on the on the way up and, you know, Bright Eyes and White Stripes and Death Cab for Cutie, all those bands too, that just, they started out, I mean, you know, when they started out, they would draw 50, 60 people. Sure. And so we were able to nurture them, get to the point where they can sell out the Casbah. And then as they got bigger, the booking agencies would work with us in taking them to bigger rooms. Mm-hmm. And that's what's kind of led to where we're at today, where we put on all these shows all over town, is back then it was like, okay, well, they're too big to play the Casbah, let's go to Soma, mm-hmm. or let's go to House of Blues, or let's go to Brick by Brick. And, you know, for years I tried to get the belly up to let me book shows there, and for a long time they were reluctant. That was under the previous ownership. Um, finally the current owners came in and they brought in a new booking person and we were able to, to work a deal with them to where we could put shows there. So, you know, we, we do 30 or 40 shows a year at the belly up with the belly up. We likewise started working with other places that are same size or smaller, um, like soda bar space, hideout, whatever, Mm -hmm. just to facilitate the amount of bands that would want to play that we didn't have room for on our calendar. Yeah. 
And so, you know, at any, on any given night, I think last night we had three different shows. Tonight we've got three different shows in you know, wow. various places in town. And it's, over those years from 94 through this, that, that, that aspect of the business has grown. I mean, we're kind of locked in with the Casbah because of the, the capacity and mm-hmm. how many nights a year can you open. And, you know, we're running, we're running pretty good. Uh, last few years have been really great. Uh, but, you know, it's always just staying on top of things. And, and I, I credit that even more so now than back then to the booking agents that I work with mm-hmm. who cultivate the great artists that we get. Well, I, I remember the, the night that my band sold out the Casbah and uh, pretty much I think we I think we quit soon after that because <laughs> I didn't know what else we could do that was going to be yes. better than that. It, it was quite a, it was, I, I remember calling my girlfriend at the time. Uh, who had which band was that bad credit okay yeah right right yeah we had long my girlfriend had long stopped coming to shows you know she had paid oh yeah dues. she'd seen you enough times right she wasn't obligated <laughs> yeah, to go just anymore. another night at the casbah right i don't need to go and i remember walking up and it the sold out written in chalk sold out on the board and i i, I about crapped my pants um it's a, it, yeah it's just such a wonderful place to be w- was there a time during that uh you know slow climb i guess where Maybe you wanted to walk away. Maybe you had enough, too many headaches. I mean, because no. it seems like a hard thing to do to run a small club. No, you know, back then, um, so 94 through probably early 2000s, maybe 2008, 2000, no, probably about 2004 or five. myself and Bob, we ran the place pretty much nuts and bolts. I mm-hmm. mean, we were both there during the day, doing the ordering, doing the promoting. I was there five days a week taking phone calls for booking. You know, people would send in CDs. We'd have to, I'd, have, I'd go try and listen to them all. And Bob kind of ran the bar stuff. And we were probably there between us, you know, each of us five, six nights a week for, for years and years. After that, we kind of, I kind of decided to try and delegate some stuff and have other people do other things. And, uh, I met my wife in 2008. So at the, around that time, I stopped being there as much at night mm-hmm. and had people who could do some of the stuff that I had to do so I could I could concentrate more on the booking and promotion sure. rather than the actual running of the actual day-to-day place. Bob, you know, got sick and kind of quit working there in, I think, 2010. And uh, he passed away a couple years, a few years later, but... So he stopped. So then, you know, at this point and to this day, I have a bar manager and a production manager who basically run the place. Mm-hmm. I can go. I do not need to be there at night to run it for a show to go off. Right. You know, I, I, I check in with the guys a couple times a week. Uh, we have meetings and we make sure everybody knows what's going down and what, what needs to be done. But they're very good at their jobs. They've both been there for years and years. And mm-hmm. that's what enables me to do what I do because I, I spend most of my time just booking bands mm-hmm. at not only Casbah, which is, you know, probably we're open there 355 days a year. And, but, you know, all the other shows, we between all the other venues we do, we're probably looking at another 120 shows a year on top of what we do at the Casbah. A mutual friend of ours, O, <laughs> um, he, uh, I remember he used to manage bad credit for, for, for years. And um, I remember one day he said, uh, hey, you want to grab some coffee? And I said, sure. Yeah, let's grab some coffee. He's like, let's go to Tim's place. 
And uh, for some reason, I thought we were going to your house, um, but we weren't. <laughs> I don't even drink coffee. <laughs> but we weren't. We were going to Krakatoa, which uh, I had no idea you had owned. And then it turns out you you just have a lot of things here in town. So what? after being at the Casbah for a while, what spurned you wanting to open up a well, coffee shop and this and that? So, you know, even during the Casbah years in the, in the 90s, I, uh, the Live Wire opened, I think, in 90. Seven. Uh, Sam and Joe are friends of mine, and Joe and I had always talked about wanting to just own a cocktail bar. Mm-hmm. This was lo- back then; live wire was just beer and wine. And so we got a call from a friend, a mutual friend who knew the people who owned the Turf Club in Golden Hill, and that place had been boarded up for a couple years. But the owners wanted to see if somebody wanted to come in and revive it. So their friend called us and we, we were like, yeah, we'd love to. We had been, you know, I had been there back in the day. And so we went in there and we struck a deal with uh, the the owners of the, the building to go in and, and reopen it. And this was in uh, 98. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went in and we, the place was completely trashed. We we were able to salvage the wallpaper and the booths and, and the bar. We had to redo a lot of the stuff in there. And we reopened in 98. Back then, Golden Hill was a pretty gnarly neighborhood. Uh, and I remember when we opened, our opening night, we brought in Sam as a partner, too. So it was Sam, Sam Shamus, Joe Austin, and myself. We opened, and in case you're not familiar with the, the Turf Club, the, the whole deal is that there's a grill in the middle of the room where you cook your own steaks. And a really beautiful cocktail lounge. And so we opened it and there was news media there and it was like, oh, people coming into this blighted neighborhood opening this business. And we had a first night, there was a line to get in. You know, we ran out of food. Hmm. Um, That was 98. We went, had a really, really great run there for for 10 years. Um, But a couple years after we opened there, the little house next door across the alley was a house at the time came up for sale because the owner of the house died mm. and we put in a bid on it and uh, we had to outbid three other people right in that same neighborhood to get this house. And we did it with the idea of opening a coffee shop. And so we opened there in, uh, I think 2003, uh, we renovated this house, built the deck outside and, and opened a coffee shop. Um, and that was just something we, you know, wanted to do, to embellish what we did already. And and we figured the neighborhood was up and coming, which, you know, we were way ahead of the curve there. With the, with your music ventures up to this point, it seems like you were, you were opening these clubs and opening these bars with a purpose. So you opened up the Pink Panther because you wanted a bar for young people to hang out at. Casbah was a place to, to book bands and see bands and be a part of the music scene with the turf club in Krakatoa. Was that, was that just seeing an opportunity or was that also going like, Hey, I, I want people to come to this kind of a shop. Well, I think a, a, a natural progression of, okay, owning a bar f- for young people then presenting a place where people can come see music. But as we got older and our core audience got older, there's other things in life. Mm-hmm. So the turf club was, you know, I think we all, ha- all three of us have a love uh, for, vintage, uh, old school things. Like we don't like to change them. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't go in and remodel the turf club. We went in and restored the turf club. Mm-hmm. And 
the whole the kitsch factor of the grill in the room and just the fact that it was a cocktail bar, which we wanted to do, was a natural thing for us. And, you know, all the people who had been going to shows at the Casbah for all those years and even before the Casbah were older now where they, they could go and appreciate the, the ability to go have a nice dinner and a nice drink. The same thing with a coffee shop, you know. And the coffee culture obviously has exploded now, but back then it was it was kind of just getting off the ground. So those were both kind of natural progressions of the whole reason we got into the whole business in the first place. So you, you open up these two places. They're successful. I mean, I, anytime I go to Krakatoa, it's full of people. Yeah, it's, it's done well. We lost the turf club. Our landlord got greedy after seeing us run it for 10 years and decided not to renew our lease mm. and subsequently took it over himself and is doing the same thing we we did there for all that time. So uh, I haven't set foot in the turf club since the day we left. I don't blame you. Uh, yeah, it was it was a bad scene. Uh, but, you know, that ha- that happens with landlords a lot. So uh, from there we moved out to, we opened a place in, in La Mesa called Riviera Supper Club. Yeah. Uh, f- similar concept to the Turf Club. We put a big grill, uh, three sizes the one at the Turf Club, in the middle of the room, much bigger place. Um, this was in 2008. Uh, so we went out there. We spent a lot of money on remodel. We this place we we bought in in La Mesa didn't have anything to restore from. It had to be completely recreated to make it a mid-century type modern looking place that it is now. So we went in there. We spent we spent way too much money <laughs> back then. We figured you know uh, okay our clientele will travel with us to La Mesa, and they did at first. But after a while, you know the, the drive out there gets to be a bit much and. So we and, struggled for about three years there. And that neighborhood didn't really turn around like Golden no, Hill did. No, we, we knew it was up and coming, but we were just, again, a little bit too too early out there. So after about three years, we just like, we got tired of having to go to the bank every day to put deposit money to cover checks and, and things like that. And it just wasn't panning out. So we, we sold it mm-hmm. and got out of there. Well, actually, actually, it was five. When, when did we sell it? We sold it five years ago. So. We were there five years. So after five years, we got out. And uh, then uh, I didn't do anything. Else. Well, Starlight. <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to say Starlight. Starlight. Yeah. Okay, Starlight was around the same time, too. We did that in, Has that actually in 2007. We did Starlight. Okay. Um, Matt Hoyt and myself uh, did that. Uh, Matt Hoyt I had known from bands. He used to book a club called The Soul Kitchen out in El Cajon. Oh, God, so many memories. And he memories. was in that band Turkey Mallet. <laughs> So he and I became good friends, and he 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 and I opened Starlight with Steve Poltz and Harlan, my Casbah partner, is a partner there as well, and that's been going strong for eleven years. I don't have much to do on the day to day there anymore at all. Matt runs the place pretty much, but it's still a great restaurant, great bar, great bar, beautiful. I mean, uh, the food is amazing, the drinks are amazing, the setting is just I ideal so yeah there was a a show i worked on uh called film in diego and we actually did a segment there with matt because he oh yeah he shot music videos right exactly and we did a segment there and we learned the whole bar area was supposed to be after the uh, north by northwest right yeah yeah i had gone up to so matt and i again had been discussing after the turf club after we lost that it's like okay i want to open another cocktail lounge Mm -hmm. and um i had gone up to portland and and seen some places up there that like the Doug Fur Lounge, I don't know if you've ever been there. The Douglas Fur Lounge in, no. in Portland. It's a it's a combination bar, restaurant, music venue. 
but it's got the similar type of decor and then the north by west northwest house and all that so those were the ideas behind the what we the instructions we gave to the designers to build the place yeah it's a beautiful yeah, beautiful yeah, place yeah. One, one of my favorite stories probably not one of your favorite stories but one of my favorite stories about starlight was quickly after you guys opened you had to tell customers to stop stealing your mugs oh yeah and it feels i feel like that was the first place in town that started using those mugs and then now everyone uses those yeah mugs. it's funny because the, the Moscow Mule had been a drink that was around back in the 40s uh-huh. originally. And, you know, who had had one up till recently? So when we opened Starlight, we wanted some kind of signature drink. And our bar manager at the time, Kate uh, Kate Wentz, she's like, well, let's let's make a mule. And we're like, well, okay. And, you know, we nobody knew what was in it. And we had to look it up. And the whole deal was serving in the copper mugs. We got these great big mugs. And, you know, there was a time when we first opened when, you know, everybody in the place, that's all they drank. Mm-hmm. And people would steal the mugs too, you know. And we definitely had to rethink that. But, no, it's, there's, it's still our most popular drink there. Despite all the ups and downs of running and opening several different businesses, Tim still finds time to open some more. With no plans to retire anytime soon, he recently became a partner in North Park Soda Bar and opened a small record shop in South Park called Vinyl Junkies. Tim Mays found a way to put his passion to work, but like most of us, we never know if it'll pan out. You know, I didn't consciously think of that when I started doing this. Like I said, when I first started promoting concerts, it was a hobby, and I did have a job, and I had a couple different jobs during that time. Um, Luckily, those jobs I had were people who were very cool and let me actually use their phones and time to book shows while I was at work. But, you know, having been able to then break free of that constraint of working for somebody else on a set schedule and having to wear a certain thing, like when I worked at the Broadway, you know, I had to wear a suit every day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like I said, never consciously occurred to me that I was able to do that. But, you know, after doing it for so long, it's like, uh, you know, I've, I've created a job for myself that I'm able to make a good living at and able to employ a lot of people, a lot of whom are friends, uh, and I've met a lot of great people doing so. So, you know, it's just kind of, it kind of came about that way mm. without any, like, any time. I never once said, like, I don't want to work for the man, you know. I, yeah. I just, like, you know, just didn't, was lucky enough to not have to after a certain point. And you start off with a, it sounded like a $3,000 investment into your own yeah. business. Uh, and now, you know, obviously if you don't, we're not to say real numbers, but, uh, and now you're, you have several businesses that you're a part of. Um, you must be living very comfortably. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't own yachts or planes or anything like that, but you know, I've got a nice car and I've got a great house and uh, my wife has a nice car and we travel and, you know, uh, things are good. Yeah. I cannot complain. Tim Mays is a fixture here in San Diego, and he's created a meeting point for the culturally affluent and those looking to be. Meanwhile, he's created opportunities for dozens of local bands and artists, helped turn neighborhoods into thriving communities, and still finds time to think of what's next. If you've never been to the Casbah or Vinyl Junkies or Starlight, go see what all the fuss is about. Just don't steal the mugs.
Thanks for listening to Voices San Diego Podcasts. This show is part of the Voices San Diego Podcast Network. Visit voiceofsandiego.org slash podcast. There you'll learn more about our award-winning arts and education podcast, Culture Cast, and Good Schools for All, the Cura Chaos podcast about movers and shakers on both sides of the border, Beer Talk Radio, our business show, I Made It in San Diego, our sports show, The Kept Faith, and the rest of the shows in the network. Voice of San Diego is a nonprofit. The majority of our budget comes from grants and donations from readers and listeners like you. If you like the show, please take a minute to go to voicesandiego.org and click the donate button. Or if you have a business and would like to sponsor the show, contact development at voicesandiego.org or call 619-550-5664.